you are all things, Lord. To you are all things, God. You deserve the glory in our lives. We recognize that this morning. God, that the greatness belongs to you. The kingdom belongs to you. The glory belongs to you. Lord, everything in heaven and on earth would cry out in praise if we didn't, Lord. You're not glorious because we say you are. You're glorious in and of yourself. And God, it's a privilege to come to you this morning to offer a sacrifice of praise. And God, I pray that as we come to your word, um, you speak to us. God, speak through your word. Speak to our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would convict, that you would challenge, that you would encourage, that you would rebuke, that you would lead us this morning through your word. God, I pray for churches in our town that, um, God, that they would preach your word faithfully, that your people would be revived. Lord, revive us again. God, bring an awakening to your church. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd bring men and women and children to know you to a deep and lasting relationship with you, God. And Lord, I pray this morning you'd be pleased with um, what we say, what we sing, what we hear. Um, let it be for your glory in your name. Praise things in your name. Amen. Y'all have a seat. Good morning. Man, it's slim in here today. Somebody came to the early service to get on the boat or something. I don't know. Um, so y'all go ahead and turn with me to Acts 23 and 24. Um, I'm going to read a whole lot of scripture today. So just want to warn you, it's about seven and a half minutes, okay? So be prepared. But before I do, as you're turning there, um, real quick, if you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring yours, we have some on the table out back. Grab one. You might need it with you as we're looking through this passage. Um, the second thing is this. We, we are in the book of Acts, which was written by Luke. And it's the second volume um, of two letters that he wrote to Theophilus. The first one was the book of Luke, which wrote about what Jesus began to do and teach. It was the ministry of Christ. The second one was Acts, which is what the apostles continued to do and preach after Christ. And, and really, Luke is not giving us a sermon. The book of Acts, he doesn't have a main point. He doesn't have like some, some big whammo things in there. He's really just giving us a narrative. And in Luke 1, at the very beginning of his two-volume set, he says this to Theophilus. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. And that's what this is. And so especially as we get towards the end of Acts, you're going to start hearing it as basically this is just narrative. This is just Luke telling us what happened at the end of Paul's life as he, according to what was prophesied about him, goes to Jerusalem, then Caesarea, and then Rome, and testifies to the gospel of the grace of God in those cities. So that's what this is. So um, if we get done with the reading, and you're like, what in the world is he going to preach on this morning? Um, then you'll find out, right? It's going to be, it's just mainly narrative. So let's jump in in Acts chapter 23, and I'm going to start in the verse before at 22, verse 30. But on the next day, this is the day after Lysias the tribune had taken Paul in, into custody. The Jews were mobbing against him, and he arrested him to protect him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, Lysias the tribune unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. But the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. 
And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees said that there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and to bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy, and they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, And told Paul, and Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him, and do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he had learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And one more chapter. Y'all ready? Chapter 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, 
Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. And some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything to say against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes back down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. After some days... Felix came down with his wife Drusilla, who is Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. You made it. All right. Um, So what we're going to talk about today from this passage is about our response to the gospel. How do you respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or how do you respond to God in your life? And here's where we're going. So the first thing we're going to talk about is we're going to look at Paul's gospel presentation to Felix, which is basically an invitation to brokenness in Felix. And we'll see that in a second. Second thing we're going to talk about is we're going to look at the three ways that these men, three of these men resisted God Um, by resisting brokenness. And then the third thing we're going to look at is God's promise to us if we step in to brokenness, to gospel brokenness in our lives, okay? That's where we're going. So first thing we're going to look at is is Paul's gospel to Felix. So look in chapter 24, verse 25, okay? Let's start at verse 24. After some days, Felix came down with his wife Drusilla, who is Jewish, and he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus, all right? And then here we get Paul's gospel presentation to Felix, verse 25. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, okay? So those are the three things. This is Paul's gospel presentation that Luke gives us. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. He first talks about righteousness, and he says that, that God is holy, right? That's what righteousness is. God is holy, and in order to be in right relationship with him, righteous, we must be holy as well. But 1 John 1, 5 says that God is light, in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in darkness and say we have fellowship with him, we lie, right? We cannot be in relationship with a holy God if we are unholy, okay? That's his first point of his gospel presentation. Second point is self-control. He points to the sin of conviction in Felix's life. And it's obvious. Felix was like a lot of the other rulers at the time. He was an immoral man. Um, He walked in sin. He had no self-control in his life. So Paul said, look at your life. You can't control yourself. You're living in sin and, and in all just, just filling yourself with self-indulgence. And that's sin against God. So he points at sin in his life. And then the third thing he says is the coming judgment. You and your sin will appear before God when he comes again. And you'll have to give an account for yourself before him. 
So righteousness, God is holy and you're not. Sin, you've got sin in your life and judgment. You'll appear before God with that sin to give an account, right? It's a pretty bleak gospel presentation, isn't it? Um, and as I was reading this, I was wondering, like, why did Paul not reason with Felix about the love of God? Like, why did he not try to, like, woo him over with God's grace and God's kindness and God's goodness and tell him, hey, God loves you. God has a plan for your life. He cares for you. Like, why was that not Paul's approach? Like, why did he dive in with judgment and sin and righteousness, right? Because, this is the first point, our first step towards God is always brokenness. Our first step towards God is always brokenness. The good news of Jesus Christ is a gospel for broken people. It's for people that see their sin and know that they're sinners and don't know what to do with it, and so they come to God asking for help. Um, in Luke 5, 29 through 32, I've quoted this passage several times as I've preached, but Jesus says this to the Pharisees. They're saying, why are you hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? And he said this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What's he saying? Is he saying, you Pharisees are righteous and you're well and you don't need the gospel? No. He's saying, I've come to call sinners, the sick. I've come to call people who know they're sick. And so the first step in Paul's gospel presentation is that Felix must know that he's sick first. He's got to know he's a sinner before he receives the grace of God in his life. And so the gospel begins with brokenness. So if our first step towards God is brokenness, then the question is, what is brokenness? What is gospel brokenness? Well, brokenness is birthed out of a longing to be near God. A longing to be in relationship with him, a, a desire to draw near, but then when we come near, we realize that we actually can't be near because he's holy and we're not, right? It's what Isaiah, happened to Isaiah when Jesus appeared to him in the Old Testament, and I, Isaiah fell on his face and he said, woe is me, a man of unclean lips coming from a people of unclean lips. It's what happened to the Philippian jailer a couple chapters ago in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas share the gospel with him, and he falls on his face and grabs their feet, and he said, what must I do to be saved? It's what happened to Paul when he was broken on the road to Damascus, and he cries out to God, what shall I do, Lord? And it's what happened to David after he sinned with Bathsheba, and then he sent Uriah to the front lines to be murdered, and then Nathan comes to him a year later and, and calls him out in his sin, and David realizes his sin, and then in Psalm 51, he says, have mercy on me, O God. That is brokenness. And in Psalm 51, 17, a little bit later in that psalm, when David's convicted of his sin, he's broken over his sin, he says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. Let me read that again. A broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. The Hebrew word for broken is stronger than just to break a plate. It's the word torn to pieces. It's the word shattered. So how many of you got, uh, like, crystal glasses at your wedding? Anybody? We got two. Like, how useful is that, right? Um, and imagine if I were to take one of those crystal glasses, right, that I could never afford, and I were to, like, slam it, like, crow hop and slam it onto my tile floor, right? It would shatter, wouldn't it? Beyond repair. That's the word broken. That's the Hebrew sense of the word, a broken heart. It doesn't just say that. It says the word contrite. What does contrite mean? It's the Hebrew word for crushed and pulverized. So if I took that crystal glass and I slammed it on the floor and then I took a boot and I just pulverized it, just crushed it into pieces, it's beyond repair. And that's what God calls us to in our first step towards him. That the reality of your situation is that you and I are beyond repair. That we can't fix the situation in our lives. We can't fix our brokenness. We can't fix our sin. We can't fix our heart idolatry. That, that we are pulverized beyond repair. And when we see that for what it is, that is when we're broken. See, all these men, Isaiah, 
the Philippian jailer, Paul, David, they were all already broken, weren't they? David was broken for a year. He had sinned with Bathsheba, killed Uriah, and it was a year before God convicted him of his sin. He was already broken, but brokenness is when we come to grips with the real situation, when we see our hearts for what it really is, and we cry out before God and before other people and ask for help. But here's the thing. There was no brokenness in this section. You're like, why in the world are you talking about brokenness? There's no brokenness here, right? There's no brokenness that I've read. And that's the point. Claudius, Lysias, Felix, Ananias, these men who interacted with Paul, they all resisted their own brokenness. And because they resisted brokenness, they ended up resisting God. So the second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at each one of these men. Um, and Lysias, who is the tribune, we're going to look at Felix, who is the governor. We're going to look at Ananias, who is the high priest. And we're going to see how did they resist being broken. And they ended up resisting God in their lives. So let's start with, with Lysias, the first resistor of brokenness. So he's the tribune. So Lysias has actually taken up three chapters up to this point. He's the man that came in when, when the mob was happening in the temple around Paul, and he took Paul out of there, and he took him to the headquarters, and he started flogging him. And then Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen. And they all drew back. And, and Lysias basically has behaved with honor. Um, he, he did exactly what he should have done. When Paul said he was a Roman citizen, he stopped flogging him. He needed to find the truth, so he put Paul in front of the council that we found at the beginning of Acts 23. And he said, let me try to figure out what's at the bottom of this. They're about to mob again, so he takes Paul out of there and saves him. He gets intel that these Jews are going to try to kill Paul. So what does he do? He sends Paul with the entire battalion from Jerusalem all the way up to protect him, to Antipatris and then Caesarea. He writes a letter, right, to Felix and explains all that he's done. And what we can tell from this is that, that Lysias has behaved with justice and honor up to this point. He has done everything right. He has been a good man. There's something different about Lysias than what you get from every other character that we really encounter in the book of Acts. Every time Paul or Peter or the apostles get around someone, whether it's a king or a governor or, or the Jews or a synagogue, wherever it is, people are always asking him, what's your message? What are you saying? The Areopagus, everyone's asking, God, what, Paul, what's your message? What do you have to say? What is this good news that you preach about? But not Lysias. Lysias never asks. He's with Paul all along, but we don't have a moment when Lysias comes to Paul and says, hey, Paul, what's this gospel that you're talking about? What, what, are, what are you having to say? And it's an argument from silence, but Lysias is one of the few characters that doesn't think he needs this message, right? And why doesn't he think he needs it? He's not looking for a rescuer because he's doing just fine on his own, thank you very much, right? And that's how a lot of us are, right? I mean, have you seen these other people? Like, they're a mess, they're broken, like the Jews, they're angry, they're wrathful, they're vengeful, they're trying to kill Paul, and then my soldiers are, are coarse, and they're immoral, and then Felix has been doing all kinds of stuff over the governorship, and the Caesar, he's crazy, like all these people around me are nuts, like I'm a pretty good guy, and he behaves himself with honor, right? And this is where we find the first, or the second way that we, no, sorry, the first way we resist gospel brokenness is we are confident in our own goodness. If you're taking notes, write that down. We are confident in our own goodness. Personal goodness is a dangerously deceptive force in our lives. And what's the deception here? The deception is comparison, right? Lysias looked around, and he said, everyone else is a mess. They're nuts. They're crazy. I'm doing pretty good, right? Um, maybe some of you come to church uh, Sundays, and, and you hear a sermon, and you're like, man, my husband really needs to hear that, Right? Or, man, let me text that verse to John, right? He needs to hear this. Or my mom really needs to hear that. Let me send her the sermon, right? Whatever it is, and you're constantly looking out from yourself instead of in. Or maybe you're someone that kind of pops in and out of church. Maybe you're here on one week and off two weeks and on one week. And, and the reason 
is because you don't think you need it. That this doesn't really add much to your life. Worship, the word, you're doing fine on your own. Um, you're pretty good. You keep a moral life. Like God's really not going to hate you, right? And you're doing okay. And so you're in and out, in and out in your relationship with the Lord, right? But you're confident in your own goodness, right? But what does the Lord say about that? What does God say about that? He says in Romans 3, 10 through 12, no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Everyone is together, turned away, and become worthless. We, no one does good, not even one. Lysias, this man, and you and me, we stand just as much in need of God's grace and forgiveness and rescue as the worst criminal on death row. We stand just as much in need of God's grace as every other human on the planet, right? Let me give you an example. Um, this is what happens uh, when kids learn about dad strength, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about, dad strength? Any firstborn sons in the room? Right, younger siblings? Am I the only one? Oh, there we go. Okay. So your firstborn son, you got younger brothers, okay? And you fight, right? That's what we do. We tussle around. And who wins? You do, right? Because you're two years older. You're bigger, right? But your secondborn brother always thinks he can win because he's, you know, it's like Andrew. He's the secondborn brother. Like, he's like, got that fight in him. But you know, you're just going to pulverize him, right? You're just going to crush him to the ground. And so what happens is, through elementary school, gosh, like 30 fights in, you've won every single one. You start to think, man, I'm the strongest kid in this house. Like, I'm the strongest kid maybe in the world. And then, and then you keep fighting, you keep fighting, and then, and then at some point you're like, I might be the strongest person in my house, right? I might be stronger than dad, right? I'm stronger than my dad. And so what happens, though, is that dad has this radar, okay? And dads can sense when their son thinks that thought, that he's stronger than dad. And he says, okay, it's time, right? It's time. And so the next time he sees the boys tussling, right, dad rushes in there and then Firstborn son thinks, this is my moment. I'm going to take down dad, right? And so he jumps on dad, and dad's waiting for this moment. He goes, doo-doo, bah, right? And slams him on the ground. And in that moment, as the firstborn son, and I'm the firstborn son. This is my moment. Laying on the ground. Sorry, I was trying to give it a third person. This is my story. Laying on the ground, utterly humiliated. I realize in that moment, I may be the strongest kid in the world, but I'm just a kid, right? And that's a dad. And dads are strong, right? Like no matter if it's an IT dad or like a big burly dad, they're stronger than I am, right? That's the reality of dad strength. And this is exactly what this guy needs to come to is that no matter how good you are, you could be the best human on the planet. You could be the most good moral person and yet you're just a human. And God is God. And in order to have right relationship with him, we must be holy like he is holy. And we do not measure up. We have a need for the gospel. This is the first question. Is this you? Are, are you resisting brokenness by appealing to your own goodness? Now, you become convinced. Maybe it's because you got crazy neighbors or crazy family, or maybe we're crazy in church, but you become convinced, I'm pretty good, right? And you like your chances when you stand up before the Lord on the judgment. Let me tell you, your chances aren't good. He's not going to be comparing you to the people around you, to your family members, to your neighbors, to your friends. He's going to be comparing you to his own glory, and we need a rescuer, right? That's the first way that we resist God by resisting brokenness is we're confident in our own goodness. Let's look at the second one. The second resistor of brokenness is Felix. Look with me at the end of chapter 24. We have Felix here, and in verse 25, we have the gospel. And he reasoned, Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, the coming judgment, and Felix was alarmed. But he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So Felix is alarmed by the truth of the gospel. He's alarmed by his own brokenness. Paul holds up the mirror of the gospel to Felix, and he's like, oh, no. Like, I'm broken. 
Like, there's, there's messed up stuff in there. Like, th- there's a problem inside my soul, right? But what does he do? He sends Paul away. He puts it off for another day. And it's like last month's leftovers. You guys know what I'm talking about. You get to your fridge, and you think it's the hamburger from last night, and you pull out that Tupperware, and you open it up, and it's like tofu tacos from last month, and it smells. And you, what do you do? No, no. Guys, don't throw it away. What do we do, man? We put it back on the shelf, right? Put it back on the shelf, and then next month, we see that Tupperware again, and we think it's last night's spaghetti, and we pull it out, open it up, and it's tofu tacos. They smell a little bit worse this time. We close the lid. We put it back on the fridge, right? Um, besides Lindsay Barr, is anyone else in this room, why do the rest of us put it back in the fridge? Right, you know? We don't want to deal with it, right? I got to eat, right? I want to eat right now. And we don't want to, like, take the lid off and smell all the smells that are coming out of those tofu tacos. And we don't want to, like, wait on the hot water to get hot. We don't want to dump it. We just don't want to deal with it. So we put it back in for another day. Let me tell you, we do this spiritually too, don't we? We get conviction from the Lord. We get broken by the Lord. And we think, man, I I don't have time for that right now. Man, I'll deal with that next week. Maybe next Sunday, Andrew will preach a, a better sermon that's a little more encouraging, right? And I won't leave, like, in a bad spot or, or what? I just snorted. That was funny. Um, <laughs> wanted to recognize that before you all thought that was normal. Um, whatever it is, we keep putting that off to another day. So the second way that we resist gospel brokenness is that we put it off. Number two, we put it off. We kick the can of our spiritual alarm down the road. And let me say, this might be where some of you have been for a long, long time, years, maybe decades. We see in this chapter... Felix sat there for two years. He kept kicking it down the road. He kept calling Paul in to talk to him. And, but he, he, the urgency decreased. The longer we allow conviction to sit in our life, the urgency decreased on Felix. And eventually, Felix doesn't even care. He just leaves Paul in prison when he leaves the governorship. And that's what happens. We kick the can down the road. And I don't know what your reasons are for putting it off. Maybe you've got young kids, right? That's a good reason to put anything off, right? They're keeping you up at night. You've got sports practices. You've got all kinds of things you're running to. Or maybe it's your job. I hear a lot of you with the, with the workforce right now, you're working two different jobs right now um, because someone's quit and they can't find a replacement. And so you're working the evenings, you're working weekends, and you're like, man, once, once they hire somebody to fill in, then I'll do, handle my spiritual state. But for right now, let me just kick it again to next week. Let me just kick it again to next week. We do that over and over and over again. And the reality is, is that you don't really know how bad things are because every time you open up the Tupperware of your spiritual life, you close it again and you put it back on the shelf. And you know that it's probably pretty rotten in there, but you have no idea because you keep putting it away. That is what happens. And here's the question. What does God call us to do? Second Corinthians 6, 1 through 2, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's calling them to step out of their spiritual apathy. And he says this, we appeal to you, church. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. And then he gives this prophecy from the Old Testament. For God says, in a favorable time, I have listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. And then Paul says this, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. What is he saying? He's saying that when you're having a Felix moment, when the Lord is calling you, convicting you, challenging you, calling you to something more, that is the day of salvation. That is the moment of the help of the Lord. That is the moment when God is coming in on your life and saying, I'm here. I'm here to help you deal with this. I'm with you in this. That is the moment to step forward and respond to the gospel, to step forward and ask God, God, I need help, to step forward in front of other people and say, hey, I need help, is to take the Tupperware out, open it up and see what's in there and to finally deal with it. I think some of y'all are there right now or you've been there for weeks and months and years and it's time. I don't know why you stuck it back on the shelf. I don't know what the thing is in your life, but it's time. It's time to take it out and start dealing with it. Let me tell you, the Lord will help you. 
He promises that you're not on your own. You're not on your own in your kitchen trying to scrub out that Tupperware. The Lord will come alongside you in the sanctification. So this is the second way we resist God by resisting brokenness is that we put it off. What's the third? The third resistor of brokenness is Ananias. So flip back to chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. Right? So we have Ananias, and, and Paul looks intently at the council, and then he says, I've lived in good conscience up until this day. And what's Paul doing? He's about to launch into his gospel presentation. That's his opening sentence. But Ananias, the high priest, wants nothing to do with it. So he orders him to be slapped in the mouth, right? And so he's slapped in the mouth, and then Paul responds in verse 3, and Paul said to him, God is going to smite you, right? He's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, right? What's Paul doing? Is he like descended to hurling insults? Is that where we are in Paul's life? He's like, I'm done with this gospel love thing. Like, you whitewash wall, right? Is that what he's doing? Well, no. Um, this is actually a prophecy. Uh, Ananias, in about eight years, is going to get struck down by the sword of his own people. Because of his hypocrisy and corruption, the Jews had enough of Ananias, and they stabbed him with a sword. They struck him down. So this is God calling Ananias out through Paul. And then he's also calling him out with this phrase, you whitewashed wall. God is pointing something out in Ananias' life. And this phrase comes straight from Ezekiel 13. And all the Jews in the room would have known exactly where this is coming from. In Ezekiel 13, um, Ezekiel was prophesying during the reign, arrived for the reign of a king called Manasseh. And Manasseh was an evil king. Um, he brought in child sacrifice. He allowed temple prostitution. He took the temple and he brought all these idols from these nations into the temple, into God's holy temple, and he burned sacrifices to them. He was a wicked king. And all the people in Israel were partaking in that. They were killing their children. They were partaking in all these evil things. And what was happening is the leaders in Israel, rather than calling them out in their sin, were saying, hey, it's all, it's all, it's all good. God loves you. Peace. Everything is at peace with you and God. You have no reason to be afraid of him. Keep doing what you're doing. That's what the leaders were saying at the time. And God comes in through Ezekiel and calls them this. He says, you're a whitewashed wall. You're taking whitewash and you're smearing it all over a broken, rotten fence. What, what he's saying is, is you're, you're taking this broken, rotten fence, and instead of facing the brokenness and the rottenness, you're taking paint and you're painting over it so that it looks strong, it looks healthy, it looks okay, but really it's rotten underneath, right? That's what Paul is referring to here. Um, our first house was in Birmingham, Alabama. It was a little ranch starter home and um, when we bought it the in inspection came back with all this uh, wood rot in the siding okay um, and you could see it in certain places coming out but they've done a good job painting it and so wood rot was in the siding so we said we're going to deal with that uh, later right and this is our first home so we didn't know do you deal with those problems in your homes never right when do you deal with them when you go to sell it right anybody else do that so three years later um, we go to sell our house and w what do we know is going to get flagged on the inspection Come on. Wood rot in the siding, right? And so what do we do, real estate agents? Anybody's a real estate agent? We hire a painter, right? We hire a painter because we're not interested in fixing the wood rot, are we? I don't want to fix it. I don't care to fix it. I don't want to be living in the house. I just want to paint over it. I want to hire a man with copious amounts of paint to cover smear paint on my house so when the prospective buyers come and look at it, they see a good house, right? Because I really wasn't interested in selling a good house. I was interested in selling a good impression, right? And that's what we do in our own lives, don't we? We do that same thing. We're not really interested in getting down and seeing the rottenness and the brokenness in our own soul. We just want to cover it up. We don't want to deal with it right now. We don't want other people to see it. We want God to see it. We don't want to see it. So we smear paint on it. We see a religious whitewash all over it. And that's the third point. The third thing we do is we paint over the rot. 
We paint over the rot. Just like Ananias, we cover up the rotten places in our lives in order to make ourselves presentable. We're much more interested in appearances than we are interested in our hearts. We don't want to face whatever's going on under there. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want people to see it. So we cover it over again and again. And here's what happens. We end up buying our own lie, don't we? We end up looking at that paint job, and we're like, man, it looks pretty good. Like, my siding looks pretty good. Anybody got weeds in your yard? Amen? Oh, man, a bunch of liars. I got weeds all in my yard. I got a yard full of weeds. I don't have a blade of grass in my backyard. But when I mow it, and I look back on my backyard, what does it look like? Good. Like, real good. And there's a, a day and a half where I am convinced of the goodness of my lawn, right? Like, I look out, and I'm thinking, man, I got a good yard, right? And then, like, the next morning, I wake up, and the dandelions are, like, up to here, and I got Bermuda grass everywhere. Like, that's what happens, but it looks good for a while. And we convince ourselves of our own goodness, and we buy our own lie. This is what it looks like for us. Just like Ananias, he was a high priest. We draw near to God. Um, We draw near to worship him. We draw near to pray. We draw near in his word. We draw near in community group. We do all these things. We come close to the Lord, just like Ananias did. And what we're asking him to do is not to really get in there and fix it. Not to really open up the Tupperware. Not to really tear off the siding and figure out what the problem is. We just want him to help us clean up our messes. We want him to help us with the symptoms. We want him to come in and and give us a quick fix, like a touch-up job, right? And then send us off happier than when we came, right? That is our goal when we come to the Lord. And we convince ourselves that we're good. That if we just have some touch-ups, just some sweeps, right, that we'll be fine in our spiritual lives. This is the third way that we resist gospel brokenness as we paint over the rot. Is this you? Are you resisting God through religious whitewash? Are you just kind of coming in week after week and trying to cover things up in your life? Are you facing them? Are you more interested in quick fixes and avoiding exposure? Do you want to know God? Do you want to draw near to him? And listen, if you come to God for touch-ups, if you come to God to fix the external, if you come to God on this level out here, the, 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 the appearance, the look, to, to cover over what's going on under, underneath, you're going to have a problem, a really big one. Um, let me continue my example of my house in Birmingham. I hired a painter, uh, and I had a problem because I hired a good painter. And my painter wasn't at all interested in smearing paint over my rotten, rotten siding. So I get there after day one of the painter on the job expecting to see, what, a beautiful house. And what do I see instead? I see that that painter had gone around my house with a hammer and started banging on my siding, right, trying to find the wood rot. And when he found it, he didn't leave it there. He turned the hammer around. He started ripping it off, making it look bad. And then he went with a sander. He started sanding off the paint in places where he thought wood rot was. And he started marking it up all over the place. And I got to my house, and it looked like it had been vandalized, okay? Like it looked like it had been neglected for 30 years, okay? It looked terrible. And you know what the reality was? It had been neglected for 30 years, right? I I or the previous 20 owners had done nothing about the rot underneath the surface. And in the same way, God's like that. He's like the good painter. He's not at all interested in covering over your messes. If you invite God in, he's going to come in with a hammer. He's going to start tearing things up. He's going to start shaving off your veneer and all the religious stuff that you put up and getting down to the root of the issue. That is God. He's not interested in touching up your, your life. He's interested in your healing. And in order to be interested in your healing, he's got to expose the rot, not just before him, but I hate to tell you, before other people. Because at the heart of it, we need one another. We need community, people to come around us and take us to Jesus and help us to walk with him in the healing. Then look at uh, 24, verse 5. Ananias 
and his Jews uh, called Paul a plague, right? Verse 5, it says, For we have found this man a plague. Here's the question. Who is the plague? Was Paul really the plague? Was he the one that was plaguing them? Was Paul the one that was alarming Felix? No, it was God. God was the plague. God was the one that alarmed Felix. God is the one in your life that makes things uncomfortable for you sometimes when you come to church. God is the one that that doesn't stop poking you in that area that you don't want to get poked. He's the one that's a plague to you. If you're running from him, if you're wandering from him, maybe you have never really made the step to profess faith in Christ, and God is a plague to you right now in your life, and he's doing it to call you back to himself. Hosea 6, 1 says this, Come, let us return to the Lord. Let me just, real quick, some of you need to return to the Lord this morning. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us apart that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up again. If we receive his invitation to come and return to the Lord, if we listen to the tearing and the breaking and the plaguing and the alarm in our lives that God has put there, and if we press on to know the Lord better rather than resisting him, do you know what we'll find? We will always find a God who stands by us. Look in chapter 23 in Acts, verse 11. We will always find a God who stands beside us. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage. The Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage. Pitted up against the hypocrisy of Ananias and the delays of Felix and the, and the lack of care of Lysias, we have Paul. Paul is a murderer. He, he, he hated God. He hated Christians. He went on a rampage against the church. He cursed God again and again and again in his life. And yet when God broke him on the road to Damascus, Rather than, rather than putting up walls, rather than covering it over, rather than pretending, he stepped in and he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And he entered into his brokenness. And God, over the course of three years in Egypt, began to restore Paul, do the long work of restoration and healing. And then, and then six years later, he sends him into ministry. And Paul is a man who has known great brokenness, but has known the nearness of his father. And what does he find? He finds that time and time and time again, God stood near him. Through every trial, through every suffering, through every time he was um, about to get beaten in prison, God stood beside him over and over again. And God wasn't facing him in condemnation and finger wagging. And God wasn't behind him with a whip, driving him forward. God was beside him, shoulder to shoulder, ready to bear every burden. And that's what we'll find. See, sometimes it seems like when God is calling us into brokenness that he's calling us to do the work. Like he wants you to do it. Like here, here's your mess, clean it up, right? That's not at all that God would say. God comes alongside us. He's with us in the healing. He's with us in the process. Will you step into that? Will you enter in with the Lord to brokenness today? That's the Lord that we have. And today we're going to celebrate that with communion. Um, So if if y'all are helping serve, if you get up and and go to the back and and get things ready. We have the privilege to take the Lord's Supper. Um, For those of you that, that aren't really around church much, this is new for you. The Lord's Supper is just a symbol it's a reminder the Lord told us to do. It's kind of like baptism. It's, it's an outward symbol of, of something going on internally. And, and what we do is we take an unleavened cracker. And leaven stands for sin scripturally. And the unleavened cracker stands for the sinless son of God. We take that cracker and it's broken for us. Um, it's broken just like Christ was broken for you. So that in your brokenness, he might bring you to healing. You might be forgiven and cleansed. And then we take the cup of grape juice, and we remember his blood that was poured out for you so that you could be washed and cleansed and made new. And we eat that and we drink that to remember Jesus. 
Um, so those of you that are serving, you want to head on down um, to the front and start handing it out. Um, but a couple of instructions for us. For one, the Bible tells us to not take communion in an unworthy manner. And what that means is if you are walking in unrepentant sin, um, if you know that there are things in your life God is calling you to step into and you're, you're not stepping into them, then I would encourage you, let it pass by until you've dealt with the Lord and that issue in your life. Go ahead and come on down. Um, the, the second thing uh, is this. If you don't know Jesus, if you're not a believer yet, I would encourage you um, to let this cup pass from you. This is a meal for believers, for those who put their faith in Christ. A couple more instructions. I'd encourage you to take the cracker before you grab the cup, okay? Or you're going to get real mixed up, okay? It's a lot easier that way. If you Raise your hand if you need a gluten-free cracker. And then um, I'd encourage you to hold the cup and the cracker, and we'll eat and drink uh, together at the end. And I'm going to have some scripture um, up on the screen. If you need some help, what, what, what do I pray through? What do I do in this time of reflection? I encourage you to look at, up there on the screen and pray through those passages. So I'll go ahead, spend some time in prayer and reflection, and I'll come back up in a second and lead us in communion.